Welcome to the Fansmanship.com podcast, coming to you from San Luis Obispo, California. Where you stand? Welcome to the fansmanship.com podcast. Owen here. And on today's episode of the podcast, I had author Jeff Perlman on the podcast. Jeff is somebody who I think uh, I first heard on a radio show, I don't know how many years ago, probably 15 years ago, talking about the book The Bad Guys Won, which is a book about the 86 Mets that's still one of my favorite sports books that I've ever read. Uh, he's written books about the USFL and the Showtime Arrow Lakers and Walter Payton and all kinds of interesting sports topics. So if you're a sports lover, definitely check out uh, some of his writing. I highly recommend it. He's got a new book coming out, I think, this week called Three Ring Circus. So check it out on Amazon or wherever. It's about the Kobe and Shaq era Lakers. And I think if you're from this area, San Luis Obispo, it's something you might be interested in. Um, and uh, Jeff's insight into some of those interpersonal things are, you know, based on <laughs> dozens and dozens and probably hundreds over the years of interviews with different people in and around the Lakers organization in and around the NBA. And um, I can't wait to read Three Ring Circus. And uh, when I had the opportunity to have him on my podcast, it was one that I just, you know, I couldn't pass up. It was absolutely um, something that uh, I had to reach out and ask him if he'd come on. And graciously, he has. Um, and it was a fun conversation to have. A quick note, uh, our conversation did happen a matter of probably a couple of hours after the news broke uh, earlier this weekend about Ruth Gator Bader Ginsburg's passing. Um, it was something that I think for both of us we acknowledged offline and something that uh, you know probably neither of us uh, were you know in, in a ton of a mood to talk about you know much of anything at the time but um, I was glad that Jeff uh, chatted with me a little bit about the Lakers and um, about his book anyway. And I hope you enjoy our conversation. Uh, it's Jeff Perlman here on the fansmanship.com podcast. Here on the fansmanship.com podcast with one of my favorite authors. He is the author of books like Boys Will Be Boys, Showtime, Football for a Buck, The Bad Guys Won, which is the most insane, crazy sports book probably I've ever read um and the new book coming out i believe next week three ring circus that chronicles the los angeles lakers early 2000s shaq kobe era dynasty it's jeff perlman jeff nice to have you on today i just want to say we did an intro before this we really did. it was all about how awful 2020 is and we just found out that justice ginsburg died and we talked about chadwick boseman kobe bryant australian fires covid on and on and on and you didn't record, which actually seems you accidentally didn't record, which seems to fit in with a the theme that anything that can go wrong in 2020 will go wrong. And I can add, you mentioned that you and your wife both well, lost grandparents. I can tell you, we lost a grandparent and my dog died this year. So 2020 is a stick to everyone's head. And I actually yeah. wish more of us, I feel like one thing that's been lost, like I was in New York after uh, September 11th. Sure. And I feel like, we all bonded over this thing, right? Mm. It's, it's, it's amazing how we aren't bonding over the misery of 2020. You know, like we're all going through it and we refuse to bond over it. 
it's it's become partisan even little things and it's just driving me freaking crazy yeah yeah and and i'm sure i'm sure you could write a dissertation on why you know on on social changes and whatever i was watching you you saying that made me think i was watching a uh my wife's binging uh star trek next generation right now and there was a uh there was an episode where there was a planet that wasn't quite advanced enough to know that there was you know space travelers that could come to them and they said why don't you just give us all your information and they said well you know huge fast advances in technology are 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 a lot of the times really bad for societies and it you know you think about it, it was probably made in what like 89 19 yeah. you know 88 whatever it was and um and basically i was picturing you know the last 20 years basically with the internet and social media and everything else and um it was you know a lot of the stuff in star trek is really interesting to watch especially that era star trek in the 80s when um when it uh you know they they, they couldn't have known everything that was going to happen but but there's a lot of things and i'm not a I'm not a Star Trek nerd or anything, but my wife kind of is, so it's fun to it's fun to get into it. I just want to say, for my money, the the most recent first Star Trek movie, so yeah. the rebooted Star Trek movie, Chris Pine, uh huh, that first one is better than any Star Wars movie that's ever been made. I think that's a I think that's a really I, I don't think that's an argument you know that you'll hear from me in terms of uh, just the coolness of the J.J. Abrams, um, you know the what do they call it? Like the sun flares when they're, when they're going outside. I mean, just the feel of that movie, it was built for the big screen and it, and, and it's one of those movies that, you know, the, the, the bigger the TV you have, the, the better it is for sure. And, I love that movie. and everybody, everybody who's, uh, you know, all the actors are perfectly cast too. Yeah. So, Great. so um, I want to ask you a Lakers question and, and, you know, you, you come from New York and, and I know, uh, you're a New York guy. I, I read that you went to school at Delaware. You're a blue hen, too, huh? Me and Joe, I, me, I Joe like Biden, it. Joe Flacco, Chris Christie, and uh, Rich Gannon are all uh, Delaware alum. I, I did a I, – I, for, for my real job, I, I had work out in uh, Northeast Maryland last year and uh, stayed in, in, in Delaware uh, right by the university there yep. and drove uh, whatever it was, 25 minutes to, to Maryland every day um, in the be. morning. Yeah, yeah totally. Totally. Yeah, it was it was fun. To, if, if it wasn't pouring rain, I would have snuck into the football stadium there. So yeah. you're from the East Coast. I'm always interested being here in San Luis Obispo, like when coaches and other people come here, like what goes into their decision or how, how do they perceive the area? Mm-hmm. But in relationship to Laker fans and Laker, you know, Laker Nation or however you want to talk about it, um, what were your perceptions and were they very different from how you actually found Laker fans once you arrived in Southern California? I mean, I think one thing that we do as East Coasters is we assume um, everyone on the West Coast is is soft, you know, and like, oh, look at you with your sunglasses indoors and your palm trees and, you know, the Laker girls, give me a freaking break. You know, like we're like Bernard King and Otis Birdsong kicking your ass, Buck Williams. And um, I think that's a perception, soft, 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 and all about the celebrity and the you know, being seen courtside and all that crap. And I would say moving out here has not changed that impression very much. Now, let me say, I wouldn't say I consider Laker fans soft. And I will say of the LA uh, fan base, I think Laker fans in a way are the most impressive because they're the most loyal and they show up on time generally. Unlike Dodger fans who show up in the third inning, Laker fans show up. I'm not trying to dog Southern California. I love it here. But like your fans are not the most, the fans aren't the most prompt fans here. And I will say also, it is um oh, sorry, hold on. You're good, no problem. I will say also, um 
I've gotten to enough Laker games where I can tell many famous people and like 22 year old models and different people of that ilk, you're better off watching the action without sunglasses. You can see the court better without sunglasses. I think that's important for them to know. You can see the court better without sunglasses. You don't need sunglasses to see a basketball court. I promise. I think out here there's this idea you need sunglasses because the court has a glare. But you don't need it sunglasses. It really does. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay without, you're saying. Maybe, it is maybe okay. you're in the right field pavilion at Dodger Stadium for an early, you know, midsummer game that's a, you know, middle of the day game. Sunglasses are acceptable, but, Fine. but inside, not, not the greatest. Not necessary. Not, I think they're just doing it because they want to be able to see the game better. And I'm here to tell them, look, you don't need them. I've been to many games at Madison Square Garden. Nobody wears sunglasses indoors. You're okay. You don't need it. You can, I don't know if you, I could actually help them. So you take them off your head, you fold them, <laughs> you put them in a case. You don't put them in your pocket because they might break. You put them in your case. You well, how about right here? Is that okay on the, on the shirt? I'm okay with that. I prefer though it's in a case and you don't even have that temptation to put them on because it's dumb. I love it. I love it. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm up here, you know, defending Laker fans or Dodger fans. I'm up here and I'm both, um, in San Luis Obispo, which is the top of the LA media market traditionally. Mm -hmm. So we get Laker home games, we get Dodger home games. The next County up Monterey County is giants territory and warriors territory or whatever else. Um, and so, um, for us, you know, it's a three and a half hour drive to either one, probably like, you know, akin to somewhere in rural Connecticut or. I don't know where back east. And so, you know, when you come to a game, you know, we always get there before the gates open and, you know, at Dodger stadium and, you know, drive in as fast as, you know, as, as, as quick as we can. Cause if we're going to drive seven hours in a day, you know, we're going to spend as much time as we can at the park. Sure. Um, but certainly, uh, certainly that's probably the, the minority. So you're talking about, you know, glitz and glamor and, and you've certainly had experience writing about that. And then when it comes to the Lakers, when it comes to the, the Showtime book, how much, um, did the Showtime book or, you know, kind of your experience writing that influence uh, your decision to write this book? And um, did it make it easier or did you have to kind of start fresh? I know it wasn't all a different cast of characters, right? There's some people that are the same in both um, in terms oh. of, you know, management and ownership, et cetera. Um, uh, what, what, what was that process like for you as, as you kind of uh, process through, you know, writing, writing the second book here? All right, so I'm going to go total truth serum here. The, yeah. When I wrote the Showtime book, the Lakers organization was awesome. Awesome. Across the board, awesome. I've never dealt with a more agreeable, friendly, accessible group of people in my life, ever. From the PR guy, John Black, to the trainer. John Black, Andy, right. Uh -huh. They were just great. They were great. And it was, how can we help you? What can we do? So that was a really good experience for me. And coming into this book, that was a part of it. Like, you know what? This is a really good organization to deal with. And, you know, it makes it, it definitely makes it a more pleasurable experience. And writing a book is a pain in the ass. Like, you have to be ready for stuff. So yeah. I started working on this book. And I will say the organization is not quite the same. I still love Jeannie Buss, the owner. Um, John Black is gone. The publicity department now seems to work pretty hard to make sure your life is more difficult. Um, it's definitely more of a business with Rob Palenka there than it used to be. You know, like Mitch Kupchak, you know, Mitch Kupchak, go and see Mitch Kupchak, like not a big deal. Or Jerry West, go, Jerry West will talk to you for hours. It just feels different. It feels more corporate. So hmm. still loved writing this book, but I would not say, and Jeannie was great. Linda Rambis was great. Kurt Rambis was great. Like those are three people I've dealt with. I enjoy. Yeah. But 
maybe the organization, maybe it was inevitable. Maybe organizations just change with times. Yeah. So that, that was actually a question that I was going to ask you is like, you know, obviously the bus family is, is a constant thread throughout, you know, Laker history, at least in my lifetime. Um, and, you know, as, as organizations and as NBA teams and ownership in the NBA changes, I mean, the, the bus family is one of the last kind of family owned kind of that, that model. And, and, and maybe what you're saying is maybe they're, they're even moving away from that somewhat in terms of how they, how they operate things uh, moving towards maybe how other, how other teams operate question mark. <laughs> it's possible. And I'm not even saying, I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm saying it sure. makes my life more difficult, but their job isn't right. to make my life easier. Their job is to run a basketball organization and they're doing what, I mean, what's the bottom line right now they're on the verge of reaching the NBA finals. So for them, Oh, making Jeff Perlman's life easier, not exactly a high priority and shouldn't be. Their goal is to win. And if, if they're winning, their fans are happy. They don't care about me. They shouldn't care about me. So sure, I can't, sure. I can't blast them for it. It's just, it makes it harder to write a book. Sure. So where, where did you start this book? Like chronologically, I know there was a period of time and I, and I told you offline that this is kind of a formative time for me as the Lakers, you know, kind of built up in the mid nineties, um, had maybe one season, I think maybe where they didn't make the playoffs at that. Um, you know, I, I call them the pig Miller years, the, the Anthony oh, pig Miller right. years. Yeah. Um, you know, Nick actually would not appreciate that. No, <laughs> no. Anthony Peeler. I don't know. It's the Sedale three years. Sedale three, um, I think was more of the guy. Yeah. Sedale three. Yeah, absolutely. One, one dribble to his left. Um, and as you know, as, as those mid nineties years went on, you know, that, that was a young team that when I was in middle school, I was all in on much like, I don't know, a kid would be all in on the Dallas Mavericks or the yeah. Nuggets right now, you know, a team that was kind of young and growing. Um, when did you kind of start the story in, in, in your book and, um, and, and how, how, how far through the, through the story did you take it? Like, what's the time frame? Well, I started with the 95, 96 season, specifically with Magic Johnson's comeback. Right. It's kind of funny. It's one of those stories. At the time, it seemed enormous. And now oh, people yeah. barely remember it happened. You know, it's funny how those things work. Like, it was an enormous story and people were paying tons of money to get seats to his first return game. And, oh my God, magic's back, magic's back. And then it's like, did that even happen? Like, was that even a thing? Like, yeah, he posted up, I think like Latrell Sprewell maybe, or somebody, yeah. and I, you know, spun around this, him. Sprewell, and... He did this, he did it and it worked and it was great. And it was this moment and, um, but it didn't really work, you know? And I, I kind of love that season because it really speaks to sort of a generational divide that always happens with veteran players. And, you know, Magic Johnson was used to Kareem and Worthy and Byron Scott and Kurt Rambis. And now all of a sudden he's playing with Nick Van Exel, Eddie Jones, and Cedric Ceballos. And those guys weren't out without merit, but he didn't understand it. Like he didn't get them and he didn't, he has an ego too. Like he definitely has an ego and he expected people to be, I think he expected these young guys to be like, whoa, Magic Johnson. I can't believe we're playing with Magic Johnson. And the truth of the matter is they were kind of more like, hey, old man, pass me the fucking ball. You know, like they weren't like, they weren't in awe like he probably wanted them to be. And by the end of the year, he just was fed up with it and didn't really want anything to do with it. And I get it. That was the year Cedric Sabalio went AWOL. And then he yeah, was- Cedric Sabalio. Yeah, Cedric Sabalio. Do you know what his nickname was? It's the best nickname in sports history. What's that? He, he nicknamed himself Chice for franchise. Chice. Short for franchise, because he was the franchise. <laughs> He was one of the best players at getting offensive rebound, but you know, running a play for him wasn't usually the 
the most efficient thing in the world as I, as I, as my seventh grade brain remembers it. He was, he's one of those guys, I'm getting my charger. That's where I'm walking. He's You're one of those guys guy, who was amazing. He would be an, an awesome expansion team. Number one option. Like he, like how Tony Campbell yeah. was a leading scorer for the Minnesota Timberwolves. Cedric Ceballos is made for scoring 27 for the first year expansion team. That is exactly, but you're not winning a damn thing with Cedric Ceballos as one of your good players. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And, you know, as, as those teams went on, like it was kind of a young team that you could get behind Eddie Jones, Van Exel. They were fun. They like to run. Vlade can pass and kind of yeah. has a different flavor. I mean, they were what, like eight guys deep. I mean, with Elvin Campbell and, you know, Sedale Threed and, uh, you know, Anthony Peeler, who I, who I always like secretly, you know, loved as a, as a basketball player. Uh, I mentioned Pig Miller, who is like, you know, the, the 10th man off the bench, you know, fun, fun guy to root for. And their, and their win totals kind of went up from 48 to 53 to 61, I think, you know, over the mid nineties there. And um, I think one of the, one of the big deals for me was being willing to put it kind of all in and maybe other GMs have been able to do that over time, Jeff, but you know, Jerry West, played his cards just as he needed to in terms of signing Shaq and drafting Kobe uh, or, you know, not drafting Kobe, yeah. but trading for Kobe, you know, cutting, you know, cutting bait on a guy like Vlade who, who still had a lot of really good years left and, and trading away Eddie Jones, who still had a lot of really good years left. And, and I looked at, you know, kind of the, the roster turnover for those first couple of years, you know, of Shaq's tenure there. And it was really a kind of a, a, a big turning point as they kind of went from being, a team that could be good to a, to a serious team, it seemed like. Uh, I just want to say first, I'll probably, by the time this book is done, do, I don't know, a hundred interviews about this book. You have made two Pig Miller references in the same podcast. No one else would do that. There will be a lot of repetition. No one else is talking about Pig Miller. So, Mazel tov on this Rosh Hashanah to you for high five. I like yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. And, um, I mean, you know, when, when you're in middle school, Jeff, you know, and, and you're, you're watching games every night. I had a, I had a history teacher who's from Boston and um, he used to a hockey player at BU, I think, um, you know, back in the day. And uh, he, he would, uh, you know, we, we would chop it up about the Lakers and the Celtics, both of whom were, you know, real bad at the time, (laughs) but you know, we, we'd talk about it and uh, you know, almost every day, like in class or nutrition or whatever, I'd, I'd chop it up with my, history teacher about the NBA and it was, it was fantastic, but you know, it was real, two real bad teams, but I didn't have anything else to do in 1995. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. So no, no. So, so, so they were kind of, you know, making, making these moves, but, but in, you know, at some point you have to, you have to kind of put a lot of pieces together, at least in, in the NBA of the time. And you could argue right now, even, you know, you take all these pieces that you've accumulated um, and you could make probably, connections to right now in terms of the draft picks that they were able to get and then trade and be able to get a guy like Anthony Davis. Um, you know, similarly, they were able to get a bunch of, you know, assets and, and either trade them or, or sign Shaquille and free agency. And, uh, and, and, and off they were in terms of going from a really good team to a team that was actually seriously a, a competitor. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, it's really interesting. If you actually look back at, if you say who are the most talented teammates Shaq and Kobe had during their time with the Lakers, just talent. You would actually say probably Nick Van Axel, Eddie Jones. You know, those are probably mm-hmm. the guys. If you look at, and even Ceballos, if you talk about those five guys on the same team, you'd say that's a pretty talented fivesome. But Jerry West recognized it wasn't going to work. And like, it just wasn't going to work. 
Nick Van Exel was not going to be a point guard next to Kobe Bryant. They both needed to shoot too much and it wasn't going to happen. And he thought Eddie Jones was too meek and his game was too similar to Kobe. Um, Sabalius was just a pain in the ass, you know, like, and I just think his building and his constructing and tinkering and he doesn't get enough. People keep asking me about Shaq and Kobe, which I get, but like, just the additions, like Rick, little things like Travis Knight, Rick Fox, Robert Ory, who at the time, he had just thrown a towel on the face of his coach, Danny Ainge, and, and they got him for Sabalius. And that was a brilliant trade. He was damaged goods, and they got him. Huge, yeah. Huge. And I just think – I don't I never liked the Glenn Rice or Eddie Jones trade. I thought that was not a good deal. But hmm. I think Jerry West understood more than any GM I've seen how to build a team, what pieces to add, how to go about it. And I just think kind of a genius NBA guy, really, truly. Well, and, and it was kind of a two-year span. I always think of it as all happening right before that 99-2000 season. But there was kind of a two-year span between the Lakers losing some games, I think two consecutive years to Utah, maybe at least one year mm-hmm. to Utah. And then the, the strike season, which, you know, kind of I, I don't remember hardly anything about. Maybe it was my senior year of high school. I don't, I don't remember a lot about it from an NBA standpoint. Yeah. But when you go then and say, okay, like I, I do remember the beginning of that season uh, – the 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 99 2000 season as you know phil jackson is brand new and you look at just the new roster you look at brian shaw you or was shaw on the team that that team that year maybe not yet harper um ac green was back yeah Um, did did you talk to ac green for your book because you talk about um you talk about generational i mean ac green was on the showtime lakers and he was on this other lakers team yeah he didn't talk and i think um it's funny he's never returned a call of mine ever since showtime and I will say, like, his virginity was kind of a big oh, yeah. show time, and maybe he didn't feel that great about yeah. that. So, yeah, that's okay. yeah, okay, I got you, I got you. Um, <laughs> another role player on that team is somebody who's local here in San Luis Obispo County, uh, Horace Grant. Uh, Horace is a guy who um, I know you were looking for for a while on Twitter, and it sounds like maybe you found him at the end, I don't know. Um, but um, is somebody who I think doesn't get a lot of uh, notice. He didn't get a lot of notoriety in the Jordan doc, that came out this past summer, yep. um, you know, as, as basically the third best player on a lot of those teams, most of the team, you know, the, probably those three teams in the second, uh, the second three uh, tied the, the second three feet that Jordan had uh, was, you know, might've been the third best player on that team overall. Um, what, uh, you know, what, what, what role did people talk about with Horace Grant or is he still getting, kind of the, uh, hey, yeah, he was there. I mean, I know he was 36 or something by the time he was on the Lakers, but he seemed to be a real steadying influence, a lot like A.C. Green was for that first title of the of the 2000s. You know, I would say yes, kind of. He was kind of a non-entity in a lot of ways, to be honest with you. Like a lot of – it's like a conga, an endless conga line of guys brought in to be the mm. quote-unquote steadying influence. I've never seen a, mm. a span with more quote-unquote steadying influences than the Lakers of right. this era. I really mean that, if you think about it. In no order, John Sally, steadying influence, Rick Fox, steadying influence, J.R. Reed, steadying influence, Brian Shaw, steadying influence, Carl Malone, steadying influence, um, Robert Ory, steadying influence, Derek Harper, Ron Harper. Ron Harper and Derek Harper, steadying influences. Sure, like, sure. All these guys at some point were anointed the steadying influences of the Lakers. And in a way that probably speaks to Phil Jackson and his sort of ability to get uh, his players to patrol themselves as opposed to always being this overbearing, you know, father, like Bobby Knight kind of figure. Uh-huh. Um, but they were like, they just kind of like, they were always bringing guys in to be steadying influences because Shaq really wasn't that type of leader. 
And Kobe didn't want to listen to anybody. Um, and most of the quote unquote steady influences at some point were like, to hell with this, this kid is not listening to me either, you know? Yeah. 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 Interesting. And, and, uh, and another steadying influence or somebody who probably got a lot of credit for it, at least, uh, out here was, uh, the coach before Phil Jackson, Del Harris, who, you know, at, I, I, I don't know why I remember this, but at some point he got a tattoo with somebody with Kobe or with one of the players at some point. I remember, I remember them talking about that back in the day and, um, you know, it was like some big, it was like this huge big deal for this, you know, I don't know how old Del Harris was at the time, maybe 60 um, year old guy to get a tattoo along with one of his players or to get a tattoo in general um, to show that he was hip or whatever. I saw uh, something that you tweeted the other day about how Del Harris was probably more of a, I don't know, steadying influence or more of a father figure to Kobe than he gets credit for. Um, you know, I would have to say father figure. But what would you say? I would say he recognized that Kobe Bryant wasn't really ready to be what he wanted to be and was patient with go. him when a lot of people didn't want that patience and kind of wanted to guess, come on, let's play this kid. Let's play this kid. And he's not ready. He's not ready. So I think uh, he was important in that regard. Yeah. And, and uh, as, as that team kind of came together, um, how much, I mean, you said that everybody's going to ask you about Kobe Shaq. I'm, I'm also going to ask you about Kobe Shaq. I always remember it as me thinking at first it was kind of a media uh, fueled situation, um, but maybe later on it being more real just from watching from afar um, in terms of drama between the two. I mean, was uh, obviously it was at the end, but but where did the seeds of the of the drama kind of start? Was it was it er, as early as the first year they were together, or um, did was that something that as Kobe got better it started becoming a thing? Um, I mean, Kobe showed up very cocky. And in that first, you know, the first time they were all together as a team in Hawaii at training camp, uh, when everyone was going around introducing themselves, he's like, my name's Kobe Bryant, Lower Marion, Pennsylvania, and nobody here is going to punk me. I was just saying, nobody here is going to punk me. That did not go over well. And then you're watching Kobe in practice and in his middle, little times in the games, he's driving one on four, one on five. He's not looking to pass. He's putting up these shots that are ridiculous. He's got a tongue out like Jordan. Um, at, at 19 years old, right? Or say 18 yeah. years old, 17 years old, right? So, you know, it was hard to like him. Like, it was just hard to like him. He was a, he was difficult and ornery and didn't want to listen to anyone. And he was a rare, it's kind of funny because you would assume, you would assume people come in to the NBA from high school, like Jermaine O'Neal did in Portland that same year. Like, mm-hmm. very quiet, going to listen to veterans. If you play me five minutes, no minutes, whatever. Like, that's how you're supposed to enter. And Kobe comes yeah. in, and he doesn't understand why he's not playing, and he doesn't understand why he's not getting looks, and he doesn't understand this, and he doesn't understand that. And it kind of put Shaq in a very awkward place where he wanted to help this kid, but uh, he wasn't helpable. He didn't want the help. So from there, he never got great. There were moments it was okay, but it never got great. How much time did you get with Kobe um, in terms like of being zero. able to talk to him? Zero, yeah. okay. I got Shaq, good amount of time. Phil, a ton of time. Ton of the players, but sadly, I did not get Kobe Bryant. Okay. Kind okay. of the story of my career, though. There's always one player, one key figure from every book I write, who does not make himself available. So that was Kobe. And 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 did the book go to publishing? Do you think? Do you think that you might have later on, or was it not happening either way? Do you think probably? No, not. He, there was no way. He was. Yeah. Not. Okay. He made it clear. Okay. Kobe. The book. Um. 
the book was done before he died. I mean, it was basically right. you know, written and everything. And I added an author's note at the end, but um, yeah, he wasn't talking. Being in Southern California, I mean, I think even for myself, I was always at the time kind of a shack guy, you know, and you had like sh people who were kind of on the shack, on the, on the side of shack and on the side of Kobe, at least in my circles. And a lot of, you know, a lot of people were frustrated when shack got traded eventually, but you know, kind of, it seems as, as the last decade or two have, have gone on basically everybody's a kobe guy at this point i mean you see my poster up here whatever right like i mean you know at some point everybody in los angeles just about um is on the kobe train um what what other athletes that you've written about talked to interacted about have been kind of on that level in a space like kobe was has been and is in los angeles you could probably say walter payton in chicago sort of that level and maybe before he left Brett Favre in Green Bay was on that level um it's interesting because the book it's certainly not a love letter to Kobe Bryant it's not a you know he was difficult during this period and I don't know how people are going to react and what that's going to be like out here but it's different than Walter Payton because Walter Payton was a deity in Chicago and a deity who did no wrong you know like you could there's nothing on Walter Payton Right. And then my book comes out and people are like, Hey, come on now. You know, I don't need to know that he was depressed at the end of his life. I don't need, it was a real shock to the system. I don't think, I don't think, I don't think anyone out here is like Kobe was just perfect. There's right. nothing wrong with him. He was just a saint. There's no one who thinks that people know what he was. And most people would sort of just either made amends with him, you know, for what happened or just were willing to sort of overlook it and move on. So it's kind of different, but kind of the same. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Um, as you, as you've had people um, start to start to read, I'm sure there's some people who've who've read copies of it, um, etc. What is the um, how do I put this? Like, what's the what's the thing? Like, and 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 maybe this goes with any book. Like, as as you have books come out, and I and again, I I follow you on Twitter, so I I saw you know your kind of thing about mix mixed feelings about how people are going to react to the to the Kobe stuff in there. Obviously nothing's not factual, yeah. but, but it's, but not all of it's great. Um, what is that like for you as you, I mean, you wrote, you wrote this book, you finished it 12 months ago, probably at this point, eight, nine, nine, 12 months ago. Right. I mean, yeah. what is that, what is that like uh, for, for you, you know, as you know, writing a book, picturing somebody is alive and then they're not anymore when it comes out. Uh, it sucks. Like it sucks. It sucks. It, um, It's like it doesn't, um, like if I could take this book back and have Kobe Bryant be alive, I would do it. You know, like I'm not, I had someone ask me after, I think the day he died or the day after said to me, does this help your book sales? And I was so horrified by that question. It was someone who just had a moment, you know, it was like, we did, we all have moments, right. had a moment. Like, fuck book sales. Like, I don't, like, this guy's dead and his wife is here and his three of his kids is here and his other daughter died and all these people died with him. Nothing good about that. So like. The thing is this, if people are mad at me, if Kobe fans are like, we don't need this information out there. Like, why do we need to read about Kobe's rape? Why do we need to read negative things? Like, I'm not someone who, who tries to say, well, here's the thing about, like, I understand why you feel that way. I actually get it. I totally 100% get it. This is your guy. You love him. He's dead. You just want to think positively of him. You don't want to know negatives. Like, I get it. I'm not going to try to convince you otherwise. Like, that's a fair reasonable take you know but 
I, I try my best to write books about sports history. Um, I like the idea that whatever, if there's an earth a hundred years from now that someone will, wants to know about this era, they'll pick up one of these books and read about it. And you can't, if you're going to write about the, I mean, no one would say you shouldn't write about the Shaq Kobe Lakers. And if you're going to write about the Shaq Kobe Lakers, it is impossible not to write about his sexual assault trial. It is impossible. It impacted the team, the era, everything about it usually. So life's a crapper. It was a whole season of the, it was the dominant story for a whole yes. season. Or so more. What are you supposed to do? I don't know what you're supposed right. to do. Right? I don't know. Right. I don't right. have the answer. And People say to me, what are you supposed to do? I'm like, I I don't actually know. I don't know what you're supposed I guess to guess what I did. Right. And, and, and I, and I enjoy the kind of journalistic look you, you take at, at writing these stories and trying to get as much, as much of the story as possible and talk to as many people as possible. Like you said, it's a long process and, uh, and certainly, uh, you know, it was a big part of that, <laughs> a, a, a big part of that era, a big part of, uh, those couple of seasons for sure. Yeah. And, uh, legacy wise, um, you know, either way, um, certainly the case. Um, Jeff, I really want to say thanks for talking um, of course. And, and coming on. Um, if, is there a place that you prefer people to, to buy your book or is it kind of wherever is okay? I think the best thing you can do is send $100 to my home and, <laughs> and maybe I'll send you a book. Um, <laughs> no, you know, it doesn't matter. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere, local. I mean, I love, sounds corny, I love supporting local booksellers. So if there's, if you have an independent bookstore near you and you can order the book through them or order any book through them, sure. they need all the help they can get right now. So how about Coalesce Bookstore in Morro Bay? There you Great. Go. I'm in. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and if you're ever up the coast and uh, you want to take in a, uh, you know, Big West baseball, basketball game, you know, or, or, you know, I guess Long Beach State and UC Irvine are probably pretty close to you. So yeah, we they, go to a lot of games. We go to a lot of basketball games at Long Beach State. Too. Okay, yeah. there you go. And, and as we're talking and finishing this, as a way to wrap up uh, our interview, I have the TV on in the back and LeBron James just rolled his ankle. So 2020 can continue to be awesome. I will say this. You Laker fans are way overlooking the Nuggets. That's a good team. Oh yeah, That's a good team. What are people oh, yeah, doing? That's a really good team. This is not a gimme. Here's, here's the approach I've taken. I've said the Lakers, the, scra the, 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 the scrappy Lakers Twitter is the bandwagon that I'm on. So you know, are the, the scrappy little Lakers are going to be underdogs against whoever they face here on out. You know, I tell myself, yeah, um, they, they should be underdogs against the heat. If they make that, if they make the finals, the heat yeah. are playing just incredible right now. Yeah. Um, you know, my eyes, my eyes don't tell me that the Lakers are better than them. So, you know, I'm taking that. Um, I'm trying to be healthy in my mental approach there and, and trying to kind of undersell it to myself and not be kind of sycophantic in that way. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the Nuggets are great. They're so much fun to watch. You know, the Nuggets and the Mavs, if I wasn't a Lakers fan, I would, you know, jump on both of those bandwagons, you know, real quick because, uh, you know, they both have stars that are, you know, fun to watch. They, they have players that, uh, that are different and unique. And gosh, you know, the NBA is, you know, as, as horrifying as it is to watch the Rockets play, it's that much fun to watch the, the Nuggets or the, or the Mavs play. And for me, the Lakers too. I'm with you 100%. Right on. Jeff Perlman, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. Hey, thanks for listening to the Fansmanship Podcast. For more podcasts and more in-depth sports discussion, go to fansmanship.com. Well, I've been stuck on down in troubled town. It's a lonely place, it's true. 
so bright they blind my vision And the people on the streets They beat me up till I'm black and blue 